this young man who will have before him, like everybody has, the path of blessing and a path of, a path of curse. So we want him to choose that path of blessing. So I did a little looking into his name, and I didn't tell them what I found until right now. So this is brand new for you guys. So, so Logan uh, is translated out Little Hollow. Now that's, when we think of hollow, sometimes we think of a hollow stick or something like that, but it doesn't refer to that. It refers to hollow as like a, a place where it's open and sort of sunk down, almost like a valley. So I looked into scripture and there's a lot of things that it says about a valley. And so Psalm 65 says, the meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. And I thought, what a fitting name for what you guys are asking to be prayed for for this young man. That he would be like a valley where sheep go and, and graze, where grain grows that produces food for many. So he would be a little hollow. And then Elijah being his middle name is, is, um, means my God is Yahweh. So that he would be one that celebrates that his God is Yahweh. And then out of whatever God gives him, he would be a little hollow to whoever come across his path. What a beautiful name, you guys. It's uh, so cool. So we're going to pray over Logan. We're going to pray over you guys. So church family, if you would, if you would reach out your hands, um, we're not going to be able to get a hold of him. You want to come here, dude? Come here. Yes. I get to pray over you. No, you're going to go back to bed. It's all right. It's ceremonial, buddy. It's okay. It's all right. So let's pray over Logan together. Church, this is symbolic of us putting our hands on him, even though you can't reach him from where you're seated. Where you're seated. So Father, we dedicate this boy to you. You made him. You've shaped him. You've put him here in South Jersey on purpose for this time and this season and all the way that you're guiding creation towards completion. So God, we pray for him today. We ask you, God, that you would guide him as he grows, that he would grow to be a godly man, that he would take after the leadership of his father, his father in heaven and his father on earth. We pray that you would give him the ability to be a man of action and leadership, a man who will speak out for your glory, a man who will hold steadfast in his beliefs and values, a man who retains humility, and a man who seeks first the kingdom of God and wants to serve you. So we ask that you would protect him from the reaching hands of generational sin, and we ask that you would go through this life with him, that he would have your mind and your knowledge, and that your hand would be upon him. We ask that you would bless his relationship with his sisters, that it might grow into an unbreakable bond, and that as this young man grows, he will not be ashamed to be a boy. He will not be ashamed to grow into the man that you have made him to be. We pray that he will be a strong man, but yet gentle to women, that the wildly different interests that he has will become amazing blessings in your hand. So God, we pray for Doug and Courtney as well. We ask you, God, that you would give them a great amount of patience, a great amount of endurance, that they would not be captive to previous things that have happened in their lives but would be free to raise this young man to be godly and strong and to be considerate. So fill them with wisdom, even beyond their experience, beyond their years. Give them strength and peace and guidance as they press in to raise this little man to become all that you've made him to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, you guys. All right, man, do we need to do anything else, right? We don't need to hear any sermons. We're good. All right, um, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. I'm going to have the ushers come and take our tithes and offerings. Uh, we're going to dismiss the kids for treasure seekers as well. So kids, first through fifth grade, you guys are free to go. They are ready to go, man. They're running. They're pumped up. All right, so we're going to dismiss our kids. You guys can go ahead and take the tithes and offerings. Uh, you can go ahead and pass those baskets. I just have a couple of announcements I wanted to hit for you. Uh, this week, uh, Celebrate Recovery is having their open house. Uh, I would strongly recommend that if you are working through anything in your life, uh, let me, I'm just going to pause for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off the cuff here, but I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you how I feel this morning. All right? You ever seen like those movies where somebody's trying to scale the wall of a fortress? Like they're trying to squeeze their way through or something and then somebody drops a boulder on them? <laughs> it kind of feels like that right now. Like, if you're feeling like that at all, come to Celebrate Recovery. Come check it out. If you ever have that moment where you feel like a boulder just got dropped on you, come. You need this community. You need this support. So hear that one, okay? I just feel like somebody's got to hear that. Uh, you need to know this is for you. It's happening on Tuesday at 6.30. So make sure you're part of it. All right, now, let's grab this uh, insert that's inside your bulletin. Go ahead, go ahead. I should hear a lot of rustling. There we go. We're moving. All right. So these are Truth for Living courses. These are courses that, that practice life skills, focus on discipleship, things that you need, uh, things that would be helpful for you as you walk a life of faith. We want to make sure that as many people in our church are attending these as possible, not just to count the number of people there, but because we believe the material that's in these is significant for you. Um, so one of these classes starts on Wednesday. It's called Crosstalk. So let me ask you a question about that. When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When's the last time somebody shared something that they were walking through with you and you knew how to connect scripture to that conversation? If that's not an easy answer, come to this course. That's what this course is about. It's about how to share the gospel in real-life context, in real-life situations. So I want to make sure that you know that. So you can sign up for that uh, at lfachurch.org slash info, or you can see me out here at the, Conne at the Connection Center when we're done with service, and we'll do that. And then if you're a leader in our church on any level, uh, the 18th of May, we have a gathering just for a couple hours on a Saturday morning. Uh, it's called Leadership Community. Uh, this is one that's going to focus on some prayer initiatives that we want to do. Uh, so we want to make sure that you guys as leaders come to that. Uh, so consider it required if you're a leader. Uh, do your, your best effort to get there uh, to that uh, event on the 18th, all right? So I'm going to have uh, Stephanie come and join me. So we're going to open up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we're back into our Colossians series. We took a couple weeks off for Easter, so we're going to pick it up where we left off, right in the middle of chapter 3. And Steph's going to read this scripture for us. So let's stand uh, while we read this scripture together. All right. I have the joy of reading this passage. It's a, uh, it's a really important one. So follow along either in your Bible or on the screen. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if any has a complaint against another, 
forgiving each other. <sighs> Sorry, this is a hard one for me. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. God, as I was reading over this before I came up, I just realized how much I've failed at this passage this past week. Lord, and I know I'm not the only one in this room, God, that this week did not live up to these standards, but God, I praise you for your grace. I just praise you that this is the week that we're gonna listen to the sermon. I pray for Greg as he brings this word, and God, just open our hearts, open our minds to the fact that this is what you're calling to us to do, and that we can rise to the standard because of you and what you have done. So bless this time with us, Lord, in your name, amen. Amen, thanks, Steph. You can have a seat. Steph, thanks for your honesty. It is so refreshing to have someone read scripture and say, man, this one's a rough one for me, right? That, that's, kind of the, that's the kind of culture we wanna have around here, that we can be honest about uh, the commands of God being, being bigger than our capacity, um, which I think we'll find is true for this, for this particular passage. All right, so I have a question for you. What do you call the things that you wear to bed? What do you call those things? PJs, pajamas, jammies, that's a fun one. So we were having kind of a weird conversation over Easter dinner, and I heard someone refer to them as their bedroom outfit. <laughs> and I said, listen, if you ever knock on my door and say you're in your bedroom outfit, go away. Um, yeah, so I'm not gonna lie, sometimes I look forward to getting into my bedroom outfit. At the end of the day, I am ready to throw on a pair of sweatpants, T-shirt, sweatshirt, because for me, the putting on of my PJs represents uh, I'm finished, represents the day is coming to an end. I'm transitioning to rest. But the reality is the next day always comes, and we wake up. And we gotta, we gotta get dressed again. We gotta put on our clothes. Uh, we know what uh, is ahead for our day, so we put on what would be appropriate for, for the day's challenges. Uh, and then that putting on uh, signifies a transition into our day. And uh, we, we cover ourselves up so that we're ready for whatever is ahead of us, and we dress according to uh, the day at hand. By the way, I wanna thank you all this morning that you came here dressed. Really appreciate that. I'm sure the community around you also does. I actually took a shot of me. This was back in my college days uh, as I forgot that it was getting ready. Um, that Actually, that time frame, that's not all that. Uh, I'd say there were times at 8.55 for a 9 a.m. class 
actually did happen. Um, but here's the, here's the point. In this passage, we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, uh, 12 to 17, uh, and Paul starts out with the command of getting dressed, like put on some garments, like get, get ready. Uh, so the command here is for us to, uh, to, get, to get ready, to put some things on. And the point is, as the new people of God, as the resurrection community, remember we, we celebrated last week, we celebrated the resurrection and the fact that the resurrection signified that everything was now different. So community is now going to look different. So as part of the resurrection community, just like we dress ourselves physically, we need to dress ourselves spiritually there are certain things that in this passage he says to going all the way through Colossians 3 that we need to put off and then to put on. Uh, Pastor Diego and Pastor Chris preached on verses 1 to 11, and they talked about putting off an old way and putting on a new way, putting off an earthly way and putting on a heavenly way. I love how uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll summarizes chapter 3 when he says, uh, we are to live kingdom down instead of culture up, right? We are to live kingdom down. That's a great paradigm for the whole of the chapter and actually really the rest of the book is that we are called to live a certain way and it is based on kingdom realities. One of my favorite verses here is earlier in chapter three, right, where it says, set your mind on things that are above. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Right, so, so if that's where life is, that's where our mind's supposed to be fixed. Right? So we're supposed to have our mind there on the reality of God and then live out our days here. So we live heaven down or kingdom down, not culture up. This is Jesus' prayer that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, not in heaven as it is on earth. So, so that we're clear, uh, what we're called to do is bring our heavenly culture here on earth, and in 12 to 17, we're going to be focusing on relationships, right? So that's the, the big idea, is what does, what does a new set of values in relationship look like based on the reality of the resurrection? I'll give you a quote by N.T. Wright. He says this, having taken off the shabby clothes appropriate for the old age, the Colossians are to be fitted out with new beautiful robes appropriate for their new position. Paul earlier, verse 11, prayed that this sort, or 111, prayed that this sort of character would appear in the Colossians. He now urges them to clothe themselves to make his prayer come true. They are not to put on a deep sensitivity. They are to put on a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. So that's our big theme for this morning. Kingdom down relationships, not culture up relationships. So here's the big lofty goal. This is what we're moving towards. You ready for this? We are moving towards a God-glorifying, resurrection-empowered, Christ-centered community. That's what Jesus has in mind for this thing we call church, is that it is a God-glorifying, resurrection-empowered, Christ-centered community. And so the, ways that, the way that's gonna happen is there are five essentials 
of the new community of God. All right, that's what we're gonna look at, the five essentials of the new community of God. So we're gonna, uh, one is putting on character, two is putting on love, three is letting peace rule, four is letting the word dwell, and then five is do all in the name of Jesus. Those of you who like formulas, I got, I got one for you. What that equals is two puts plus two lets plus one do equals the new community of God. All right, so if that helps you, I'm not sure how your mind works if you find that, that helpful. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, will you train us in being part of your new community? You died and you rose bringing victory over death so there would be a new way for us to be alive. And so I pray, King Jesus, train us in being a God-glorifying, resurrection-empowered, Christ-centered community. In your name I pray, Jesus, amen. All right, so first thing, our first put is put on character. All right, we are to put on character. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We are to put it on. So as a result of your decisive steps of engagement with Christ Jesus, there's now some expectations. You are to put some things on. This is a call to action. You have things to put on. Just like this morning, you made decisive movements to pick one thing over another thing and to put it on. So if you're gonna follow Jesus in resurrected life, then you're gonna learn a new way to live in community. Now, I do have to warn you, the bar's high, right? Like the standard of living in the Jesus-centered community is not a low standard, right? So I hope as you're hearing this message, your response will be like what Stephanie's response was just simply to the word of God is, wow, this is a high standard, because if you're not hearing a high standard, then either I'm not communicating well or you're not listening well. Because this standard is way above all of our pay grade, okay? All right, so here we go. Uh, so earlier in chapter three, Paul had told us that this new resurrection life uh, was to put to death or put off certain vices, right? And now he's going to tell us to put on some other virtues. So we put off certain vices, now we're putting on certain virtues. Uh, I, I kind of put it in a, a format that might make it simpler. So we are to put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. And then in verse nine, he says, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Now to keep things in nice, neat, parallel lines, uh, he says, here's what we are to put on. We are to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And you're gonna see the trajectory of community shifts from the first two columns are usually things that are designed to serve me. And then in column three, where we put on virtue, is things designed to serve others. So the arrow of my relationships moves from what I can consume to what I can offer. All right, so let's look at these. First one is, did I skip it? Yep, first one is compassionate 
hearts. All right, so compassionate hearts. What he's talking about is compassionate hearts are the seat of emotion. It is love characterized by mercy. So this idea of the heart comes up over 900 times in the Bible. It talks about life flowing out of this control center of your life. All of life flows out of the heart. I heard this saying from a Tennessee farmer, what comes out of the bucket is what was in the well, right? So what comes out of your heart, right, or what comes out of your life, that's what's in your heart. All of life is going to flow out of your heart. So you must be willing at the seat of our emotions to consider others, right? That you would have a compassionate, compassionate heart. This is why in the language of the resurrected community, the new, uh, the new work of God is that he's going to give us a new heart. He's going to change something inside of us. Now, this is, a, again, a high standard, right? The call isn't act compassionately, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying have a, put on a compassionate heart. That means at the command center of your life, not just at the behavioral point of your life. So not just what you do, but even what you think, what you believe about a person, God's calling us to be compassionate. That's a high standard. So what does that mean for us? Well, here's what it means. You gotta be willing to go slow enough with another person that you find in their struggle some place of connection, something you can relate to. Perhaps their life experience, their situations are vastly different than yours. But here's the thing. Their human condition is exactly the same as yours. So at the level of your heart, your life circumstances might be completely different, but you know what it's like to be intimidated. You know what it's like to be, to, to be insecure in a certain situation. You know what it's like to, to deal with failure, right? Those are all heart issues, and guess what? We all deal with them. So if you're willing to go slow enough with another human being, get close enough to another human being, then you can operate in a heart of compassion. So that's the call. Put on a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. So then this heartfelt compassion then is coupled with kindness. This is, this, is, this is a hard one for us because the trajectory of culture up, right? What, what, what culture says is really we're in the, the selfie generation. I mean, even think of the way cameras were designed before, right? I mean, the earlier ones I've ever seen is you had somebody taking a picture. They had to like get under a blanket Right? They weren't even like in the same room as the other people, seemingly. They're under a blanket, and they're pulling some sort of string. It's all about the people on the other side. Or you know, before you had the cameras with the long lens, right? there was no selfies there. But now everything is click. Let me get you in the background, me in the foreground. Selfie, selfie, me, me. How about another shot of me? How do I look? How does me look in this one? Right? As opposed to kindness is the trajectory about you, about you. And then, it's, and then it's a little bit more about you. And it's considering others. It's about goodness, the disposition of your life being about another person. It is walking into a conversation. Can you imagine a community like this? 
walking into a conversation and thinking about other people. What is this like for them? Wonder what they're going through. You know, I, I, uh, I have some part-time work at Inspira and they do this thing at the Inspira Health Network because they wanna shift culture because we're self-absorbed people. They do this thing called the 10-5 rule. And the 10-5 rule is that within 10 feet of another person, you're supposed to make eye contact. Then within five feet, you say hello to them or some sort of verbal greeting. And I, like, I find that to be an incredibly helpful rule. But I also find it incredibly sad that we need to have a rule that says, hey, treat another person like they're a person, right? Like they actually matter. But we need that because we, our disposition is not kindness. We don't walk into rooms and think typically of, I wonder what their experience is like. Let me, let me move towards them. And if we could as a church, and, and you know, we have it in bits and pieces, but stop walking through doorways and thinking only about ourselves. But what about, what about that other person? Wonder, what, wonder what's going on in their world and in their life. So then we add to kindness, we add humility. Again, kingdom down versus culture up. Our culture, pride is celebrated, pride is expected, right? Like instead of, um, uh, but in the New Testament, like lowering yourself is actually the expectation, right? I mean, this is the example of Christ where he emptied himself and considered our greatest need and moved towards us. That was, his, that was his humility. This was the attitude that led him to the incarnation and the cross. And you know, I think actually at times we struggle in the church to even find our place in the body of Christ sometimes because we're not content to be a servant. We're looking for even places in the church to how does this prop me up? How does this make me look good? As opposed to the humility to say, you know what, this isn't about me. This is about what, 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 how can I be a ligament, right? How can I, you know, in the body of Christ, how can, I, how, can I, how can I help serve and make someone else successful in what God has called them to do? If you notice, humble people don't escalate problems. You will never see you will never see Jane Caldwell and Patsy Ritchie throw down. You're not gonna see that. You're not gonna see Pastor Diego and my mom square off in an argument. You're not gonna see it. Why? Because those people have a reputation that as they engage in the world around them, it's not about them. Right? It's, it's a posture of humility. All right, gotta keep moving. Meekness. Meekness. So meekness is um, mild, gentle. It's the opposite of being rough. Now, here's what I want you to know about meekness. Um, what meekness is, is knowing when to be tough and when to be tender, right? When, there's times where we need to be strong and forceful, right? But what meekness does is know that that's not all the time, that there's times when what we need to communicate is gentleness, and kindness. I love these images, and you've seen these, right? Where you see a big, strong soldier, somebody who's trained to hurt other people, but then they know when to shut that off. I love the bottom left picture of just the peace 
and gentleness that's represented there. Or that top picture, right, of just the joy of, of moving towards a child. And you think about the context of that individual or that soldier, like, humbly on his knees, right? That's, that's meekness. That's knowing when to be strong and when to be gentle. Then the last aspect of Christ's character that we are called to put on is patience. Patience is how we react to the world around us. If kindness is how we act in terms of engaging, patience is how we react to how people engage us. Right, so patience is our, our reaction to the world around us. We don't rush to a conclusion. We are patient in our, in our judgment. Now, I wanna be careful here. Patience does not imply compliance or indulgence. Like God in his patience, right, he was willing to forbear on our sins. He didn't say it doesn't matter, right? But he was willing to be patient in dealing with us. This is God's long-suffering nature or prolonged gratification that we will get there eventually. It is being willing to wait, to go slow. It is willing to sit in the wah-wah line behind 12 other people and you see them back like five or six of them around the coffee bar instead of opening up a second register. Like, hey, open up the other register. We can get through here and we can all go. Patience is saying, I'm just gonna wait. It's all right. I'm gonna get there. Maybe it's gonna add two minutes to my day. I can be patient. So Paul has told us to put on the character of Christ. Now, oh, I want you to look at those. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, on a scale of one to four, one being, man, you are really bad. Four being, doing pretty good, right? Run through those and give yourself a score, one to four. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, right? Where, where are you weak? Where are you strong? Make a note of that, and we'll come back to that a little bit, a little bit later on. All right, so that's our, that's our first put, is to put on character, Second put is to put on love. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul says that love is the most essential garment of all. In fact, the, the metaphors seem to get a little bit mixed here. In one sense, he's saying like, like you're gonna, you're gonna above all put these on. So like this is the cloak that goes over top. But then he says, well, it also binds everything together, right? So it's kind of like this love is the stitching that holds all of these other values together. The point is that love is the most essential thing in all of relationships, that we love not just in words, but in what we do, right? Love has, has action. Love is not just using another, but it's offering things to another. Love is not predicated on what a person offers you, but love is based on the character of the giver, not the recipient. What, lo what Paul's talking about here is agape love. That's the Greek word. This is the most important grace of God that Paul talks about throughout the entire New Testament. He's always coming back to the theme of love being essential, love being what guides our actions. 
So the command to get dressed and to put on love, this is the flowing down of the kingdom of God. It's gonna look like these characteristics. It's gonna look like this expression, which is, which is love. And then he says, um, you notice too that the phrase just before this, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love. The example for what love is to look like precedes the command to love. Christ's self-sacrifice provides for us the model for such love. Now, culture up says, I'm free to love when your actions or behavior are pleasing to me, right? I extend love based on what you're offering to me, but that's not agape love. That is a contract based on performance. And if you're not performing up to the standards of the contract, then you are out of compliance. Therefore, I am not contractually obligated to offer back to you love in return. Right? That is not agape love. We need to grow up. We need to put on love that says, really, no matter how silly, no matter how ridiculous you are, I have set my affection on you, and I'm not going anywhere. That's agape love. That's the kind of love that drove the father throughout the Old Testament to be continually in pursuit of his people. That's the kind of love that drove Jesus to the cross in that while you and I were yet sinners in rejection of God, he died for us. That's agape love based on the character of the lover, not the worth of the recipient. So in case you're not sure what that kind of love actually looks like in practice, Paul gives us two examples. So we go back. First example is bearing with one another. So we love by bearing with one another. Now, why do you think Paul needed to tell us that if you're gonna love, that means you gotta bear with one another? Why does he have to tell us that? You know why? Because some of us are just annoying people. Like, I get on your nerves, I'm sure, and The call is, sorry, you have to bear with me. That's what Paul just said. Put on love, and you have to bear with, right? So so the call is there's times when in dealing with God's community of people, we're called to bear with one another, right? We We can't call to love and just say, well, I love when it's convenient, I love when it's comfortable. I love when what you're offering to me is, is, is really fun for me. No, we're, we're called to bear with one another. And loving relationships, now you might say, well, I, like I don't really need to be loving towards them. If you're not loving, then you're not biblical. Like we're not just a group of people that get together and we ascribe to the same set of beliefs. We are a group of people that are transformed by the love of God and then loving each other. So good theology is to be reflected in how well do we love each other. And if guess what? If we're not loving each other well, the problem is there's something wrong with our theology. We're not believing rightly if we're loving wrongly. So you might say, I just don't want to bother with people. I'm sorry, that is not a New Testament God-glorifying option. So our relationships need to be strong enough to deal with the challenges of being in relationship. Like I actually, like people might come to our church and I'll have a conversation with them and they'll say, well, you know, I dealt with this at this other church and, you know, these people were so mean to me and, and, and you know, I don't, I, I'm only hearing their side of the story. 
But here's what I think, is until you walk through conflict, because there's gonna be some people that are mean to you here, and it might even be me. And until you are willing to walk through conflict with the community that you're in, I'm not really sure you're even in that community yet. Right, like to be in community, we're called to bear with one another. So, loving relationships allow us for the to create the platform for dealing, right, with the need for bearing with one another. Now, sometimes bearing with crosses a line, and you're no longer able to bear with one another. Now you move to the next picture of love, which is the need to forgive one another. Sometimes annoying turns into sinning. So Paul's command then uh, is that there are some grievances in order for us to move forward, uh, we're gonna have to offer forgiveness. Now, why do you think Paul needed to write this as a command? You know why? Because sin happens. Like, there will be sin committed from one person to another. So the command of the community of God's people is we need to act on forgiveness. We need to be willing to offer, extend, and at times ask for forgiveness. It's not uncommon. There will be many occasions where such forgiveness will be called for. All members will be in the situation all of us will be in a situation at one point or another where having to forgive or needing forgiveness, right, is the only way to move forward in relationship. And oftentimes, it's not that one person's wrong. Most of the time, both of you are wrong. Both of us are wrong, right? Rarely do I walk into a situation like, well, we have 100% innocent and 100% guilty. No, it's usually some sort of percentage in there. And the only way forward is for both parties to be willing to own their part of the conflict and extend and receive forgiveness. Let me say this. The ability for us to be able to extend and receive forgiveness in the body of Christ is going to be a sign of our maturity. Often what we think is if there's an absence of the need for forgiveness is the sign of maturity. But that's not what Paul's saying. The picture here is in the new community of God, guess what? Forgiveness and grace are gonna have to be part of it or it's not gonna work. You know why? Because we're all imperfect people and we're all trying to grow up together. All right. I'd love to talk more about forgiveness, but I'm gonna have to move us on. Here's a cool uh, quote by Alexander Pope, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Here's some excellent points I would have shared with you about forgiveness if I had time. All right. Um, I, yeah, I gotta, I gotta skip that part. Well, maybe I'll put that in the e-minder so you can see it uh, this week about some, some key thoughts related to forgiveness. But let me move us on to point number three. Let peace rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So in the place of forgiveness or in the place of disagreement, like where forgiveness is needed, what Paul is saying now is let peace rule. Let it rule in your hearts. 
He's not talking about let peace just rule in your mind, find your inner chi, right? Just breathe deeply. He's saying actually at the command center of your life, let peace rule in your heart, in the place of decision-making, in the place of strategy, let peace rule there. I can remember my brother-in-law giving excellent advice to my wife. She was dealing with a conflict with her mom. This was years ago, dealing with conflict with her mom. And he said to her, like, so you're gonna bring confrontation to what end? Like, are, are you willing to work towards peace in your relationship? Are you willing to bring wholeness, right? And so she had to wrestle with that of like, yes, the, the, the purpose of me bringing confrontation is to achieve peace, right? That's, that's letting peace of Christ rule in your hearts, that this is a movement towards wholeness. Don't react in a situation. Determine what it is that you are looking for and move towards peace. Now, there is a time for confrontation. There is a time for, for sharp words. There is a time for challenging disagreements, where sterner attitudes are required, right? There, there are places, but in matters primarily of personal relationships, Paul's repeated command is pursue what makes for peace. Like pursue unity, pursue peace. So at the level of your heart, the level of strategy are the decisions you are making moving on the pathway to peace. Now, how are they to achieve peace? Well, Paul gives us the expectation. Peace to which indeed you were called in one body. So Paul reminds them of the gospel where Jesus made peace. Now, he didn't just make peace between God and man, which is the primary peace that he made, but he also made peace between man and man. Paul reminds them that they've been brought into the relationship of one body. Now, this is very significant because at this church, there were two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And listen, we deal in our culture, right, with issues of racial tension, primarily within the, uh, maybe not exclusively, right, but primarily within the African-American community and the white community, there's this racial tension. Why does it exist there? It exists there because slavery is part of our history as a church, as a, as a country, right? It is a sad statement of, of what happened, right? Where we actually like considered someone as less than human. That's, that's only a couple hundred years ago within our very culture. And we are dealing with that sin still today, right? The ripple effects of that sin that happened is the racial tension we're dealing with today. I know that's an oversimplification, but it's true. It is the consequences of sin, and we're dealing with it as a culture. Now, that's only a couple hundred years old. They were dealing with a division between Jew and Gentile thousands of years in the making. And Paul is saying, listen, in the new community of God, there's just one people, there's not Jew, Gentile. There is citizens of heaven. There is a new people of God. Those old divisions, they are now gone. The two have been made one. So Jesus says, I have made peace. Now live in it. 
Set your course towards the peace that I have established between the two of you and with the Father. Number four, we are to let not just peace dwell, we are to let the word dwell. Man, I love love this one. So the second let is going to help us live at peace because it keeps us locked in to the word of Jesus. It keeps us locked into the essential message of Jesus, which is reconciliation, which is grace, which is forgiveness. And so the context where it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, the the picture here uh, is the context of the word of Jesus from Colossians 1 and and Colossians 2. Uh, That's the context for what does he mean by the word of Jesus? It's the message of Jesus. What did Jesus come to accomplish so the word here and is what Jesus came to accomplish is the truth of the gospel. What Paul is saying is let gospel fluency be yours. Let the reality of the gospel be, be ever present in your thinking, ever present in your strategies. Let the word of Jesus' work on the cross that restores relationships with the Father dwell in you richly, profoundly and pervasively. There's three ways that this is gonna happen. It's gonna happen through teaching, admonishing, and singing. So the word of Christ is gonna dwell in us richly through teaching, admonishing, and singing. Teaching is the positive presentation of the truth, right, where you are being taught something. It's being communicated to you. Admonishing is warning about negative consequences of straying from what you've been taught, right? So you have the carrot and the stick. The truth is the carrot. You wanna move towards it. Admonition is the stick of, oh, you're out of line. Be careful. I'm warning you, right? We need both of those things. I I don't recommend that we actually use sticks, um, but this is in our communication with each other. There's times that we need to warn each other. Singing is the rehearsing of the great truths of God through music. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly through teaching, admonishing, singing, that we lift our voice in song and celebrate the truth of who God is in praise to him, but then it also cultivates our hope in those particular truths. So teaching, admonishing, and singing. Now, this is not just corporate, right? This is not just what we're doing in here as the corporate gathered church. This is supposed to characterize what it means for us to, to live as the church, right? This, is, this should characterize what it means for us to, to go to pastorates together, or to be in discipling relationships, where there's teaching, where there's admonishing, where there's singing, where there's celebration of truth. This should also characterize what it means for us to have a meal together where we sit and we talk, or as you ride in the car with some other people. Like this is the people of God, not just the people in gathered corporate worship times, right? This is is to characterize God's people in community together. Now, 
talks about singing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, some people have tried. I read a lot of commentaries on this. I tried to do some word studies on it. I've tried to make some strong distinctions between the psalm, the hymn, and the spiritual songs there. Uh, And maybe you've heard about the difference between those, like the psalms reference uh, exactly what we have in the book of psalms, and maybe uh, hymns represent uh, more like theology about God, and then spiritual songs would be more like our choruses. Listen, that all sounds great. I just don't know if that's what Paul's talking about. And there might be some distinctions that he makes here. It's just not clear to me what exactly those distinctions are. So the conclusion I can feel comfortable drawing, right, is that there is some sort of diverse uh, means by which we are to be singing. And that the, the word of Christ is going to grow in us as we pursue teaching, admonishing and singing, that the depths of our personal experience, right, will will increase. I think that's why it says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, right? So So it's something of, it's going to penetrate richly to the deepest parts of us, not merely lip service, but that we are celebrating the truth of who God is. Now, I wanna highlight two things that, uh, two places that I think that you can go in the near future to really grow in letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I'm gonna give you two. One is Diego's class that he's teaching on Wednesday night. I think this is like week number two. It's called Crosstalk. Should be in your bulletin. You can sign up for it out there. It is basically a class on how do you use scripture in communicating with each other? What's the role of God's word in how we live in community together? Fantastic class, and it's Diego, so you got a fantastic teacher. The second place is in our baptism class that we have coming up, which we haven't determined when the date is. We're looking to see signups, and then we'll interact with you. But during the baptism course, one of the things we talk a lot about is gospel fluency. What is the gospel? How do we talk about it? How can I actually use the gospel to help me understand what's going on in the world around me? So those are two places that I think can help you through uh, teaching and admonishing uh, that would be uh, places to grow in letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, fifth, our final do is do all in the name of Jesus. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, uh, to God the Father through him. Now, word and deed is simply a common way of referring to everything that you do total action, from the words that you say to the activities that you do. Everything about you is designed, right, to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. What that means is you are doing it as a physical, living, breathing representation of King Jesus. You are the manifestation of the person of Jesus on planet Earth for people to see. So everything you do, do it in his name. Do it in such a way that people could look at your life and get to know truly the beauty of Jesus. So in every aspect of behavior, whatever seed you sow, do it in his name. Do it as his ambassador, representing the Jesus that has rescued you. And this goes for all of us. From the elementary age students that are in the room to middle school, to high school, to college, to young adult 
right, to, to middle age, to senior citizens. Like, this is a call for all of us who name the name of Jesus to do everything in his name to do everything in a way that accurately represents the kind of man that King Jesus was and the kind of God that King Jesus is. Now, you might say, Greg, the stuff that you're talking about, like, this is just too high of a standard for me. Like, it's just too much. You want me to have a compassionate heart? Forget about it. Like, you don't know. I can't, I can't do that. You want me to, to be meek? That's not me. That's not my style. Right? So, like this, I told you, the standard here is a high standard. And to say, sorry, that's not me, that's simply not a good enough answer. Because th- this isn't me, right? This is, this is the word of God. Let that be the plumb line for you. And if God is calling you to a higher standard, well, guess what? then you're called to a higher standard. But the good news is, is everything that he calls you to, he will provide for you the means by which you can do it. So God is saying, when he commands you to put on these characteristics, he's saying you have the power to obey. You have resurrection power to obey. You can choose to put on character. You can choose to put on love. You can choose to let peace rule. You can choose to let the word of Christ dwell in you. And you can choose to do all in the name of Jesus. You have the capacity to do. He's calling you to it, and he's going to give you the power by which you can do what he's inviting you to do. So you might say, well, that sounds great, Greg, but where, where is that power? Where is that capacity? Well, I want to end with this. If you notice, I skipped a little part of verse 12. And the power that we have to do comes from knowing who we are, that we have to know our identity. So as soon as Paul says, put on then, he pauses, he hits the brakes, He's about to to raise the standard that is gonna be above all of us. So he says, listen, if I'm gonna raise the standard, I gotta remind these people of who they are. So before the specific commands, Paul is gonna remind us of our identity. And what we need to hear, please, please hear this. And honestly, if you're taking notes, you might wanna just set your pen down and just listen to this. Just hear this truth. Your identity is something that is received, not achieved. You receive an identity. You don't achieve your identity. And when we get that wrong, we think our identity is achieved based on our success. But here's what happens. If your identity is achieved based on your success, you are not gonna end up with Christ-like character. You're gonna end up in pride. Or we think our identity is lost in our failure. And when we think our identity is lost in our failure, we're gonna end up anxious, right? We're gonna end up, we're gonna end up, I'm not talking about clinically, but we're gonna end up depressed, right? Because everything hinges on us, on our ability to achieve our identity. And if you are achieving your identity, then you have to perform. And there is no security 
in identity if identity is predicated on your activity, right? You can't rest in that because maybe you got it right yesterday, but guess what? It's a new day, new test. You might fail this one. And what happens is our behavior always flows out of our sense of identity. Who we are determines what it is that we do. What we believe we are determines what it is that we're gonna give our time to. So just before Paul sets the standard of here's what you're going to do, he needs to remind you of who you are. And he gives them three identity markers. Please hear these. Three parts of your identity. Number one, you're chosen. You are chosen. You are God's chosen ones. And I know some of you believe that you are chosen here and you are chosen for all the wrong things. That you win the award for suffering, you win the award for failure. Why does this always happen to me? Seems like everyone else has it easier. But this is God's choosing for your good. God chose you to adopt you, to make you his own. This goes back to Deuteronomy 7, right? Listen to this passage. It's so beautiful. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you. So more clearly than anywhere else in Colossians, it is evident that the Gentile believers needed to hear this message. Right? I just told you about the thousands of years of racism between Jew and Gentile, and God saying, listen, listen, I, like, you need to hear, it's not just the Jewish, I have chosen you, you are mine, you are my treasured possession. And I think some of you think like those Gentile believers, and you think that you're disqualified for the people of God that you need to hear the message that the Father has chosen you not based, right, on your pedigree, not based on what you bring to the table, not based on your performance. Why has he chosen you? I don't know. I have no idea. Why did God choose me? I have no idea, but I am so grateful that he did, that God chose me because he wanted me. I remember playing basketball with my brother. He's two years older than me. I, I've probably told you this story before. But as we got into high school, uh, not only was he two years older, but he was like six inches taller. And so we would go play basketball. And uh, so I was a little late running into puberty. So, you know, here's chubby little Greg playing with high school basketball players. And I was not so good. But my brother was very good, and he would often be captain of the team. And you know who he would pick first? Me. Not because I was good, not because I contributed to the team, but because my brother had set his affection on me, and I was his brother. Right? That's what the Father does for us. Not because we offer things to him, but he has chosen us. Second truth, 
Second truth is that we are holy. We need to remember that we are holy. What does that mean? Our identity is holy. It means we're unique. We're set apart. We are chosen into a royal family. I don't know if you've ever like been like in a, in a situation where uh, you're with a group of people and you're like laughing and joking around and, and you enter into a room and something like sacred is happening and you feel like a complete idiot, right? Because you were being like rude or silly or loud and something sacred or something holy was happening. And what you brought to that holy moment was something that kind of defiled it. Right, because that moment was set apart. The people of God have been set apart. You have been chosen. You've been made holy. You are unique. He has set you apart. Third point is that you are beloved. You are loved by God. Just let that like sink in. The God of the universe has set his affection on you as his chosen people. You are loved. And for some of you, you're like, that is so refreshing. I so need to hear that truth, that God loves me. Others of you are like, that sounds kind of mushy. I can't get that. Like, I like hearing about God's principles, like the first part of, like, God's character I can get. But to say God loves me, Greg, I'm not really comfortable with that particular truth. Well, maybe you can access it this way. Think of a father telling a son that they are loved. Or a father telling a daughter that they are loved. Or a mother telling their child, their daughter, that they are loved and that your father tells you that you are loved. And I know some people have a hard time thinking that God loves them. And if that's you, that pain runs pretty deep that there are things that have happened in your life that make it difficult for you to believe that, that even a father's love or a mother's love is even a good thing. But I want you to know that the pain that you've experienced in those broken pictures of love, what they point to, what they point to in their imperfection is that there is a perfection that is real. You know it through the imperfection and the pain it's brought that indicates that there is something real about that love. And I'm telling you that a perfect father loves you. So we have to remember our identity. And I'm not gonna take the time here, but all throughout this passage, after he reminds them of who they are, he tells them, calls them for thanksgiving, to be thankful, to be thankful. And the reason we need to be thankful is because we tend to forget who it is that we are. Instead of remembering who we are and that being an empowerment for what God has called us to do, we tend to forget. And thanksgiving is a discipline to help us remember. So this is the standard. Five essentials for the new community of God. Put on character. 
put on love, let peace rule, let the word dwell and do all in the name of Jesus. And the only way that this is possible is that we must know who we are. We have to live in that place. We have to fight that battle of faith so that we can actually take steps in community because what happens is if we don't know who we are, we will engage in community to secure our identity. And what happens is we kill community that way. Instead of in the confidence of knowing this is who I am because of Jesus, right? I am chosen, I am holy, I am loved. Now I'm freed up to love you. So here's how I want us to end our time together. I want us to stand and I want us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly by singing. Can we rehearse the words of God, the truth of God, let them work their way into our core belief system, into affirming our identity by singing back to the Father what it is that he has done for us?